Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of the Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, also here at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Today we're here with Daniel Darling, the author of a very timely book called The Dignity Revolution. He is the Vice President for Communications for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He writes regularly for publications such as the Washington Post and the Huffington Post and hosts the Way Home podcast. Dan, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. I love how you begin your book because you start with a story about the children's book, Horton Hears a Who, which is a book we've all heard, we've all talked about, but you tell the background story of this book that I had never heard before. So do you mind share with us that background story and how it lays just kind of the heart or the basis for your book, The Dignity Revolution? Yeah, so this story really fascinated me. Uh, in During World War II, uh, there was a cartoonist named Theodore uh, Giesel who... Uh, used his talents to advocate for the Allied cause. You know, he was a supporter of Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and the fight against uh, the fascists in you know, Germany, Italy, and Japan. And, um, you know, his cartoons were in newspapers across the country, but he actually went beyond patriotism, and he uh, would depict Japanese people as uh, less than human. Uh, in fact, if you Google some of the images, they're pretty racist. They, and this was at a time when uh, Japanese Americans, as you know, were uh, rounded up and uh, put in internment camps. That's really kind of a shameful part of our history that we've since officially apologized and even made reparations for. Um, but something happened to Giesel in about 1953. After the war, he took a tour of Japan and he met with survivors from uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the proximity he had to these people really changed his heart and changed the way he viewed uh, Japanese people. He now saw them as fully human. And he was so remorseful, he, he came back to America and really apologized in the only way that he knew how. He wrote a book uh, under the pen name of Dr. Seuss called Horton Hears a Who. And there's a line in that book that I think is so powerful, and it, and I think all of us remember it, it's, it goes like this, that uh, a person's a person, no matter how small. I, I love that line, and I've used that line many times when talking about the issue of pro-life, that human value doesn't come from your size or where you're from, but just being a person. And you really argue that that's at the heart of human dignity, is understanding what it means to be a person. Can you talk about that a little bit and also how you ground human dignity within the Christian worldview? Yeah, I mean, the Bible has such a, a rich and exalted view of humanity uh, that I've always been fascinated by. I mean, you think about it, in the opening pages of the Bible, in Genesis, uh, when Moses is writing about the creation of the world, how God created the world, uh, for most of for all of the natural order, God, the Bible says, Moses says, God spoke it into existence. But he slows down his narration when he talks about the creation of humans. And he uses this just rich language where he says that God reached with his hands and, and 
with into the dust of the ground and sculpted humans and breathed into them the breath of life, uh, and that humans are are stamped with the image of God. King David says in Psalm 139 that uh, every human being is knit together by God, potentially in the mother's womb. So it's such an exalted view of humanity that that humans uh, there's something different about humans above the rest of creation. We're not we're not God. Uh, but we're not animals or angels either. And there's a special care that God has given humans, a special responsibility. Uh, and so human dignity is grounded in the fact that we were designed by a creator uh, that uh, we're made in his image, which gives us both, uh, as I said, responsibility, but it also gives us a certain dignity. Dan, there are a couple of responses to this that we hear culturally fairly often. Um, one of those is from people like uh, Peter Singer, uh, the, print, the Princeton philosopher, who, is, who has actually argued that the, the view that you just espoused is what he calls a speciesist view. Uh, that is, you're actually being a racist for your species. Uh, and it, and it, un, it in unnecessarily and uh, illegitimately elevates human beings over the rest of the animal world. Uh, the other response we get culturally is from someone like the Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker, who I'm sure you're familiar with his yes. piece, which we see entitled The Stupidity of Dignity, where he maintains that we th that the appeal to dignity is just a specious concept that that is a mask for other things that we're trying to accomplish. How, how would you respond to both uh, Singer and to Pinker uh, in the way they push back against this idea of human dignity? Well, I would have two responses. I think one, on one level, you know, a Peter Singer is, you know, carrying out a sort of secularist vision to its very conclusion. I mean, uh, without, without, without the Christian theology there's really not a great basis for human dignity. In, in fact, a lot, of, a lot of people said this. When the human right, the, the Declaration of Human Rights was drafted after World War II, you know, they brought in all the leading ethicists, philosophers, uh, and it's, it's a beautiful declaration. It, says, it talks about the dignity of every, every human being. They agreed that this document needed to be drafted, uh, but they could not agree on a moral basis. And, and a lot of researchers, like Timothy Shaw and Georgetown and Several others, Oliver O'Donovan and, and some other philosophers, have said, you know, that this idea of human dignity is a theological assertion. There has to be a theological worldview under it. So if you don't have that, you, you go over Peter Singer's and you say there actually isn't a difference between the species. On the second level, though, I think there's an instinct sense in all of us that there's something special about humanity, and even the Peter Singers of the world and the Stephen Pinkers of the world acknowledge this without saying it. Uh, for instance, you know. Uh, they're making their case that there's nothing special about humans. They're making that to humans. Why are they doing that? You know, why didn't they address, you know, uh, a vegetable garden or why didn't they address, you know, sea mammals with their, with their arguments? They, they have to address their arguments toward people because people are the only ones who can rationally think about their arguments and respond, right? Like when they go to work and when they live their lives, they, they depend on humans this sort of functioning or uh, ordered society. So I think uh, these guys actually do believe that there's something special and dignified about humanity. 
without actually without acknowledging it. I I wonder if it'd be it, it would be fair to say that uh, that uh, Singer and Pinker and uh, others uh, of a more secular ilk would embrace the idea of human rights, but maybe not the idea of human dignity. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. But the thing is, though, it's hard to get to human rights if you don't have human dignity. Because hum if humans don't have inherent dignity, why should they be privileged and why do they have rights, right? I mean, that, that, that's the thing that I don't quite understand. And, and so in a sense, Singer, you know, it, is a sense being intellectually honest, like that he's following his use to, to the logical extent. The, the problem with that idea, if you don't have a sense of human dignity, you don't you don't get to human rights, and then you get to a place in societies where certain groups of people uh, is justified doing harm to them because you don't feel like that, that there's any sort of special dignity or protection. Okay, which, which of course, that's the idea that we, where we start to resist that idea. Yeah. Let me let me ask you one one other question on this, where I think culture pushes back a bit, um, and that is, you know, I, I mean, we, we we would certainly agree that uh, the idea of human dignity is at its core a theologically gr grounded idea, and that if there is if there is no creator God, uh, who has invested human beings with dignity intrinsically and made human beings in his image, then the, the concept of dignity really does have no basis. Uh, and I think you, you're right about that. Uh, I, but I, let me, let me I'll tell you a story about a stu student of mine that I had a couple of years ago. She, t she did her undergrad work at one of the Cal State, uh, State, State universities here. And she was in a history class with a professor who was lament, lamenting the fact of the Holocaust and made the assertion that if there was that if that if Christianity didn't exist, the Holocaust would never have happened. How would how would you respond to that in your in the discussion of dignity? Well, there's a couple things to think about. Number one, and I think Tim Keller actually gave a really great talk uh, to English Parliament, you know, not long ago, a few weeks ago. He made the case, and, and I actually make the case in the book too that. Um, at times, you know, so first of all, the thing we have to acknowledge is that German society was a Christian civilized country, and yet they still allowed the Holocaust to happen. And what happens is that, you know, over time, you know, people justify harm to certain groups of people that they have marginalized and dehumanized. Um, but when it, just because we're saying that human dignity has its basis in Christianity, and that human dignity is one of the best gifts that Christianity gives to the world, that doesn't necessarily mean that Christians in every context have always lived this out faithfully. So I would argue that whenever Christians are complicit uh, in atrocities, uh, it's because they've gotten away from the center of their faith, not because they've gone to the center of their faith. Um, and actually, even in the areas where secularists or people who are not Christians criticize Christians, for say, how could you have allowed the Holocaust to happen, or how could you have justified slavery in the antebellum South? You're appealing to arguments. You're appealing to a sense of dignity that actually borrows from the Christian faith itself. You know what I mean? 
So you're using our own arguments against us. And, and actually, a lot of the criticism is valid of that we have not been consistent. But, but you said I'm saying like Christian. Yeah, that's, that, that's, a, that's a helpful distinction. Christianity uh, introduced this concept into the world. And, uh, and so when there's criticisms, uh, you're, you're, you're actually borrowing from our own ethic to criticize yeah, and I think you can actually make a good argument that uh, a lot, a lot of the appeal to human dignity today, culturally, is is doing just that. It's 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 living on borrowed capital from the Judeo-Christian yeah. roots from you know fifty to hundred years ago. Yeah, we're actually at a place where we're so far along in the sort of Western history in Christendom, if you will, that you know. A lot of people are living in sort of an infrastructure built in some ways by Christendom that they don't recognize the roots of it. And so the criticisms they're making, valid ones of Christians, are borrowing from the ethic that they think they oppose. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, fair, fair, fair point. Dan, you have a section in your book where you talk about how human dignity relates to the gospel. And you say that it unites two seemingly disparate strands of the Christian life. What do you mean by those two seemingly disparate strands, and how does dignity tie that together in the gospel? You know, there's always, there's been the age-old question, at least, you know, for evangelicals, it seems like every every generation we're having this argument. You know, we had it at the beginning of the 20th century, we had it in the middle of the 20th century, we're having it now. You know, is is the gospel proclamation of individual salvation in Christ by faith, or is it uh, social action uh, on behalf of the vulnerable? And we're always trying, we're always acting as if those two things are divided. And, and, and I think when you understand the concept of human dignity, and you understand the concept, the idea of the kingdom of God, I don't think Jesus lets you do that, right? So Jesus comes and he says, First of all, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's telling people that you need individual personal repentance uh, and faith in, in, in the Messiah and Christ to get into the kingdom. He's telling this to Nicodemus, who's the, you know, the most um, righteous man of all. Even he needs to do that. He's also saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And look at what the kingdom is like. So when the the disciples of John come to him and say, uh, we just want to make sure that you're the right king. He said, look what's happening. Uh, are the lame walking? Are the blind having sight? You know, he talks about the kingdom being good news for the poor. So it's both. So uh, there's an entrance into the kingdom through salvation in Christ. But now that we're living for another king in another kingdom, as the church, we're uh, the outpost of the kingdom. We show the world what it looks like. And we do that when we come alongside the vulnerable. When we, when we show the world what it means to, to value every single person, uh, regardless of their utility, regardless of their of their um, perceived uh, you know value uh, in society. So I think this idea. I, I don't think if you really understand the gospel and you really understand this idea of human dignity that you can separate both of these things of so gospel proclamation and uh, social action. One of the challenges for recognizing dignity today is that the understanding of dignity has seemingly changed radically. So sociologist Mark Regnerus wrote an article two, three years ago called Dignity 2.0. 
in which he argues that dignity has shifted from something human beings inherently have because of the kinds of things they are to affirming somebody and their choices of behavior based upon their feelings. So we hear about like death with dignity, or if I don't affirm certain choices you make in your life, I'm robbing you of your dignity. So part of my question for you is how do we live out a Christian view of dignity, in particular with younger generations, when they seem to be operating under an entirely different understanding of what dignity is? I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because that, that's often where it gets confused. You know, I think there's this idea that um, to recognize someone's full humanity, dignity, I have to uh, solemnize and affirm every choice they make and every, every decision they are. But that's actually not what human dignity is. That's not what it means to be created. Our word is given to us by God because of our status as image bearers. It's not dependent on our choices. It's not dependent on anything else. In fact, we don't derive our identity from our from sexual orientation, from from any any sort of uh, any sort of choices we make. Uh, our, our identity is not in that. Our identity is that we're an image bearer of Christ. And actually, I think to just automatically affirm every, someone's choices and behaviors in, in some ways dehumanizes them and patronizes them. Because one of, the, one of the essential parts of being human is that we are accountable to God, that uh, we are accountable to our creator. And so not acknowledging that and, and automatically affirming and agreeing with somebody almost treats them as sort of someone that's less than human this sort of has to be patronized and i think i think those mixing up those two things is really a problem especially when it comes to the collision with religious liberty so all of a sudden now uh, my dignity is derived like you think of like uh the masterpiece cakes case that the state is essentially saying in order to recognize the full humanity of a gay couple the cake baker has to um, sacrifice his own dignity, his own conscience, uh, to affirm them, and I and I think that's really not, I think that's not a, a good pathway, and I, I I don't I think that's a distortion of what it what human dignity actually means. Yeah, Sean, I think part part of the the issue on the on the question you raised, and Dan, I think I like your response to this. Um, is that the, the the premise I think of dignity 2.0 is that everybody's life choices are on an equal level playing field, morally speaking. And, we, and yeah. that's, that's just simply not true. Uh, and, but we treat people's life choices, their subjective life choices and preferences, as though they were all on the same level playing field, which I think c clearly they are yeah. not. Yeah. Let and and to, to uh, follow up on that, I think um, I have a chapter on sexuality, and I think... Part of being an image bearer, part of being an image bearer of God is the idea that we are not God. We're not animals, but we're not God. And so we were not designed to be autonomous uh, creatures. We are designed to, to, to live in harmony with our maker, to live according to the way that we were designed. That's part of what it means to be human. And so the temptation since Eden is always to try to be like God and to be our own gods and to worship ourselves as sort of self-worship. This is why the Old Testament talks 
a lot about idolatry. This is why the first commandment is don't make graven images, because that's the first temptation is to forget that we're image bearers of God and to then create our own images of our own hands or to worship ourselves. Uh, we're not the masters of our own fates. We're not um, uh, the sum total. Our identity is not the sum total of our desires or the sum total of our life choices. Our dignity and our worth is bestowed to us by our creator. Dan, I appreciate in the, your emphasis in the book how you laid a, a really good theological foundation, but then you, you spent a lot of time putting shoe leather on it, too, uh, and talking about how your view of in, intrinsic human dignity as, as God's good gift impacts several specific issues that the culture is wrestling with. So tell our listeners a bit, how does the view of dignity that you defend uh, make a difference in our discussion about race? Well, I think this was probably the hardest chapter I had to write because uh, I really, you know, as a as a white evangelical, you know, living in majority culture, it's hard for me to understand you know, what it's like as someone who's lived in the minority culture. Uh, but I really, you know, talked to a lot of friends and I just try to really think through what this means. And I think it's it's essential to talk about. I think. Human dignity is essential to the conversation about race because essentially, essentially, what racism is is a kind of dehumanizing. It's it's just to say that you're less valuable because um, of the color of your skin or because of your ethnic origin. Um, it's a sort of it's it's a sort of usurping of of, of God's authority to sort of put yourself in a godlike position to declare worth, dispense worth based on skin color um and part of what martin luther king was doing uh in his uh, civil rights uh, movement he, he appealed a lot to human dignity and he was trying to tell the white supremacists can you look at me and see me as a whole human being not just uh, a problem not just an obstacle not just you know something less than human uh I think of the, just a vivid picture of when he was striking with the sanitation workers in Memphis and they had sandwich board signs that said, I am a man. And what they're saying is we are not property. We are not, you know, garbage. Well, we are whole human beings. Can you see us in all of our humanity? And part of helping work toward racial unity, racial justice is for us to listen and learn to people who are different than us and see them in their full humanity, to listen, to learn, to understand, to not see people as a sum total of their arguments or to see people sort of in, in categories and groups, but to see them the way that God sees them. Okay, good. Now, let's take uh, same, same question, but about immigration. So immigration is a complex issue, right? And I think Good people will disagree on exactly where the line should be, you know, how how government, you know, how many people government should let in. You know, governments haven't been given the sword by God, have have a responsibility to control their borders, have a responsibility to, um, you know, make those decisions. Um, but I think one of the things we have to avoid in, in the immigration discussion, one of the things that really has bothered me over the years is some of the ways that conservative Christians will talk about immigrants themselves and, and use sort of dehumanizing terms. So things like anchor babies or 
or, you know, calling immigrants rats or invaders or, you know, these are subtle ways that we use language to dehumanize. And when you, when you dehumanize a, a, a population, you justify doing just about anything to them. Uh, I think another really dangerous place we go in the immigration debate is it's easy to fall into this sort of Darwinian mindset that one group of people's flourishing is an obstacle to another group of people's flourishing, right? So this is an argument the pro-choice people make, that the flourishing of babies is an obstacle to the flourishing of women. Uh, well, I, I hear a lot of people say that about immigrants, that that the flourishing of this immigrant community over here is an obstacle to the flourishing of this working class community over in, over here. Um, and I, I just think that's an unbiblical concept you know, when you start pitting groups against each other. Okay, one, one, or, one or two more. Sa- same question on how in, intrinsic human dignity impacts the discussion on health care. Well, this is an important topic, you know, and I think, again, this is an area where good Christians disagree on, you know, health care delivery, right? Uh, but I do think what we should agree on, what we have to agree on, have to say is that if we believe that every single person has dignity and worth, then we should care about someone's access to health care. We should care that they have uh, access to proper care when they get sick. We can't have a, a mindset that sort of is dismissive of like, oh, you know, um, you know, as if we don't care about what happens to people. And part of having dignity is having access to care to get healthy and to improve. And so it's, it's a difficult issue. And I think good people are going to disagree on exactly how healthcare should be delivered. You know, should it be market driven? Should it be government driven? I think I think there's errors on both sides. I think some people who really believe in the power of the state don't understand how sometimes the state can rob people of dignity and can be soulless and can actually, you know, hurt healthcare in many ways. I also think that some people like me who tend to believe more in the power of markets uh, are sometimes blind to the way that sometimes markets can do the same thing and, and, and have a sort of, um, you know, cutthroat mentality of, you know, well, let the market decide. Well, sometimes the market decides that that person who has cancer is not worth the risk. We're just going to sort of let them die. And so I think as Christians, we should care deeply about healthcare. We should, because I do think it's a human dignity issue. I do think it's a pro-life issue um, that we should not be callous to it. Uh, but obviously, we'll come to different conclusions probably on exactly how to, what's the most prudent way forward. Okay, one more and, and brief, briefly uh, on how uh, intrinsic human dignity affects our discussion of technology. Well, I think it's really important. I think it's one of the biggest discussions that's going on right now is, you know, what exactly does it mean to doesn't mean to be human. Um, and I think we're having these discussions. I mean, on one level, technology is is a fulfillment of the creation mandate, right? Uh, the act of technology is to fulfill the mandate to create, explore, to innovate, you know, as we create because we are created by uh, a creator. You know, we image God when we create things. Uh, when we, you know, when we Take the raw materials that he's given us, and we um, use use them to create things. On the other hand, uh, technology can be corrupted in a fallen world, right? It can be used for bad ends, or uh, and so I think we always have to be asking not just 
what are we doing with technology? But I also think we need to ask ourselves, what is technology doing to us? Uh, what are ways that it's taking away our humanity? What are ways that it's replacing? I think there's a big discussion right now about artificial intelligence. You know, how is this displacing work? Uh, how is this sort of, what is this doing to us, to our humanity? I think on a practical level, even the way we communicate, um, the, I, I love social media, and I think it's really, in many ways, helped people communicate better. It's lifted voices that have been marginalized before, but it also can be toxic. Uh, it there, There's a way in which um, technology removes the face-to-face communication that we were built for. It removes a sort of sense of community that we were built for. And um, I read a fantastic book by Gene Twenge called iGen that really explored the ways that, you know, constant screen time by uh, Generation Z, if you will, or iGen, has really stunted kind of social skills. Uh, we, we were built for community, built for face-to-face interaction. And I think the church really needs to address this. And one of the things that I think is so interesting to me is that um, the very rhythms of worship may actually be the respite that a digitally exhausted world so think about this. For a lot of people, they're coming in on Sundays having just been exhausted digitally, and you're coming into uh, embodied worship where you're sitting physically with other brothers and sisters. You're taking the cup, taking the bread physically. You're praying together. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, very embodied, very analog. And those sort of rhythms, I think, are going to be increasingly more important uh, and good for our souls. Dan, this is really, really good stuff. I love how you're tying the central concept of humans being made in God's image and having dignity to a range of different ethical issues. And we've kind of just scratched the surface here where you have chapters. You go into race, abortion, immigration, healthcare, technology, uh, sexual issues, and so on, trying to help Christians see that at the heart of how we approach all these ethical issues is treating people with dignity. And what I really appreciate about your book as well is you mention a number of issues, but you really go out of your way to be charitable towards people, even with whom you disagree. So on the issue of abortion, you are strongly pro-life, and Scott and I are as well, yet you still mention that this issue is fraught with complexity, and you take the moment to pause and just say, you know, I too am a sinner and broken. So I think that's really just a good model for Christians to have firm convictions, like our our president says, a firm center, but soft on the edges. So thanks for your writing. Thanks for your posture. And thanks for coming on the show. Man, thank you, guys. Great discussion. I really appreciate the work y'all are doing there. Uh, Some really important work helping people think and uh, how to live uh, on mission for God in 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 this 21st century. Well, thanks for your work. And we want to encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of your book, The Dignity Revolution. Thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Dan. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Daniel Darling, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.